Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Now that children are back in school, did anyone win this fight? Freezing or waiving development charges could leave Ontario cities on the hook. Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell has dug himself out of the wicked snowstorm in Buffalo. The Argos and the Blue Bombers Grey Cup run. Will we soon see a woman driver again in F1? And we have the latest dating trends for those of you who are looking for love. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This is not about unions winning or government winning. It's about our kids. And they're going to be in class. They're going to be learning in class where, frankly, they always should have been. I think it's terrible that we live in a world that doesn't see the need to provide services to kids that they need. But we will always put workers first. We will always put our students first. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Those are the voices of Education Minister Stephen Lecce and CUPE's Laura Walton. Kids are back in class today after provincial government officials and the union that represents 55,000 education workers in this province spent the weekend at the bargaining table and finally got a deal done yesterday afternoon. Peter Graef is a professor of political science at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton to break this all down. Peter, good morning. How are you? Great, thanks. Is there a winner and a loser in all this? Well, I mean, I think it's always... uh... It's always a win when you have collective bargaining and you get to an agreement which both sides can live to, live with. And, uh, you know, I think we saw that you don't need things like notwithstanding clauses to, to get there to an agreement that, again, it has to be uh, ratified uh, on the Labour side later this week, but that both parties can live with. CUPE's uh, Laura Walton said, quote, I don't like this deal. If the members do not accept it, we will be back. It is going to the membership uh, for a vote starting on Thursday. Is she potentially trying to save face here? Well, I mean, I think what we had at the end of last week was uh, more or less an agreement on money. Uh, And the union saying, well, we actually think it's also important that uh, we look at staffing levels and make sure that these services are actually available. And so they tried to push that through the weekend. I think the uh, government knew somewhat cynically that, uh, you know, the the union was unlikely to to go out uh, on that issue. You know, that there was some internal division within QP, uh, but also that, you know, once the money was there, probably the public support for a union going on strike, even if it was about better services, you know, might not be there. So, you know, I think it is a bit of a, a face-saving uh, move, but also one that's trying to signal to uh, Ontarians that the union was not just uh, bargaining for wages. They were trying to improve the, the services available. And ultimately, if people don't like where those services are at, uh, you know, it's a government that didn't budge on that. Yeah, and there was a, a tipping point in all this, and we didn't reach it yet, but if the union had said, listen, we don't like this deal, we're back on strike, you know, public opinion is now starting to shift, I would assume, starting to shift a little bit towards the government. That's possible. I mean, it is, it is hard to say. This is a group of workers which, you know, I think at least for parents who are around schools, no, aren't that well paid and work hard. Uh, you know, they're they're earning, you know, half of what the teachers are making uh, in m- many instances. So, uh, you know, I, it's it's hard to say how that would have broken down. Uh, I think the parents would have been very uh, unhappy to have to come up with emergency uh, ways of having their kids looked after this week uh, or, you know, have to give up work and so on to, to look after their kids. But I'm not sure at this early stage they were that willing to let the government off the hook. I think for them this looked like a bit of a, a manufactured crisis. 
Would have been interesting for sure. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Peter Grave, political science professor at McMaster University. As we talk about the provincial government and the union that represents 55,000 education workers in Ontario, finally getting a deal done yesterday to avert what would have been a second strike uh, or walkout, according to the union, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Lecce, for his part, said that all parties achieved incremental wins during these talks and, quote, a positive outcome for all the parties. Now, he may be right. But he also has to choose his words carefully because the province is still negotiating with other education unions and he can't really tip his hand. Yeah, and I mean, I think the incremental win here is that, you know, when you have inflation sitting at uh, 5 6% and your deal is for, you know, just under 4%, it's in fact a pay cut for the employer, uh, the employee groups, right, for the workers. And so I think for him it's an incremental gain because he can now come into his other negotiations and say, look, this group took less than in inflation. Uh, we expect you to do the same. So although he wasn't able to impose, you know, the very low uh, salary uh, proposal uh, earlier, uh, you know, the government's goal through these public sector uh, negotiations is to impose an inflationary pay cut on their on their workers so that they can maintain a very good uh, budgetary situation that the province is in at the moment. Right? Yeah. If they're in surplus, it's in part because public sector workers have taken, you know, a cut of a 5 to 10% uh, due to inflation over the past uh, five, six years. So this agreement, you know, means uh, higher wages than they were wanting to pay, but probably still less in inflation. And, and that's going to be a win for this government's uh, overall political direction. Peter, you brought up the notwithstanding clause a couple of minutes ago. Do you think that with, with more negotiations coming down the line, do you think that is going to hover like a dark cloud in the background? I think it will a bit. Uh, but to the extent that we saw uh really an unprecedented agreement in the Ontario labor movement, which is usually quite divided, you know, over the necessity to envisage things like a general strike to push back on that, to say that our rights are, are, are too important to be trampled in that way, that it would be, uh, you know, pretty dangerous for the government to move in that direction because they would likely, you know, produce a, a similar result. It's going to be fun to watch from here on in because more negotiations are on the way. And when I say fun, hopefully good fun for kids uh, who will remain in school. Peter, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today and enjoy the rest of your day. And you too. That's Peter Grafe, professor of political science at McMaster University. As we recap a wild weekend at the negotiating table between QP and the provincial government at the end of the day. A deal is done, a strike is averted, students are in class this morning, and, well, some, if not all, the union members got what they were expecting, at least in terms of some money with a bit of a bump, maybe not as high as they had initially were requesting, but they're getting a bit of a bump. In terms of hiring more people, and that was a big bugaboo from the union, that is not going to materialize, at least not at this point. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is no secret that we need more homes, more affordable homes here in Hamilton and across the province. So much so that the province has opened parts of the Greenbelt and it is planning to freeze or waive development charges for home builders to help build one and a half million homes over the next 10 years. It's the promise that Premier Doug Ford has made. The, the trouble is, and this is according to the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, which represents the leaders of more than 400 municipal governments in this province, including Hamilton, it says that this move, the freezing or waiving of development charges, could leave communities and taxpayers at the end of the day on the hook to bridge that gap. 
Andrea Horvath is the mayor of the city of Hamilton and joins us once again on Good Morning Hamilton. Andrea, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, Rick. Good morning. So the thought is that by waiving or freezing development charges for home builders to build more homes, it will also leave communities on the hook to fill the gap and will probably mean increased property taxes. Is that the likely scenario? Well, that's the that's the problem, one of the many problems with the legislation uh, and the approach that the government's taking. Uh, we have always, uh, or for many years now, have believed and, 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 and planned our communities in a way that ensures that growth pays for itself. That's what development charges are all about, uh, making sure that the infrastructure necessary to support uh, development is paid for by the new development, not saddling the you know, the existing taxpayers with the cost of, of that growth. And uh, that's been a principle that's been in place, again, for some time. So this is very troubling uh, because it will it will land on the property taxpayer. It will land on everyday Hamiltonians to pay for that uh, that price of, uh, of development. And, and there are other parts of that legislation that's problematic as well. But certainly the financial hit uh, is, is really, really, really problematic. How else can a municipality offset this lost revenue? Are we talking user fees apart from just increasing property taxes? The amount of uh, revenue that it's going to require to pay for development that doesn't pay for itself is, is not going to be able to be covered by user fees. It, it's, it's really, um, and I, I don't understand why the, the government doesn't, um, under, doesn't understand that, that there's just no capacity uh, fiscally at the, at, the, at the municipal level a number of, uh, of conservative MPPs are actually former councillors, um, so they should know that this kind of um, this kind of bill is going to be really troubling. And and you know, the thing that's frustrating is we we do have the least capacity to cover these costs. One of the other things that they're doing in this legislation is is reducing the park land dedication uh, funds, and so they're they're basically saying the, the developers are not going to have to put 5% aside for parkland. Um, and so then the cities are going to have to figure out how do we buy that land um, you know, to make sure that communities are whole communities that have parks and, uh, and amenities. So that's, again, that's very, very wrongheaded. And of course, the idea in the first place of, of, uh, of digging into the green belt is, is it's just, it's completely backwards. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about making sure that uh, we have food for, for future families, right? That, that we're able to feed ourselves, that we're able to, uh, uh, make sure that that we, our productive farmland, and we have some pretty productive farmland here in Hamilton, uh, is uh, able to be relied upon for generations to come. So there's there's a lot of real concerns there. Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about the plan to freeze or waive development charges in Ontario for home builders so they can build much-needed housing in our province. This money, some people may not know this, that is generated from development charges is used to pay for things like roads, sewers, transit. Does this mean tough times ahead for Hamilton's infrastructure? Well, that's a really great point. We all know that we have... Situa- uh, situation right now where our infrastructure is, is uh, not where it should be. Uh, it's very costly to maintain uh, infrastructure over the life cycle, and, and we have to be dedicating funds to that each and every year. In fact, we're going to be talking exactly about that this week with the uh, uh, the, the capital budget uh, conversations this week and next week. Uh, so, so how can we how can we pay for this new infrastructure when we are not even holding our own when it comes to the existing infrastructure. So again, this is very wrong-headed, uh, and 
and we're obviously not only ourselves as the city of Hamilton, but as you mentioned, the Association of Municipalities uh, of Ontario, uh, the Ontario Big Mayor's Caucus. I mean, everybody is singing from the same songbook here. And what we really want the province to do is just slow down a little bit. Uh, let's engage cities, engage municipalities in a conversation about how we can uh, achieve the goals that we all want to achieve. We all want more housing. Absolutely. We all want more affordable housing. Uh, but let's do it in a way that uh, that helps us to build complete uh, communities that have the proper amenities, uh, that we don't saddle the existing taxpayer uh, with the, the costs of the infrastructure and the roads, the sewers, the libraries, uh, the parks, all of those things. Uh, and, um, and that way, we'll actually... We'll actually not only build units, but we'll build communities, and that's what we have to do. We only got about 30 seconds. Are you actively going to fight this? Uh, it's not just us. In fact, every municipality, the big city mayors, all of us have uh, have agreed uh, that we have to... We, uh, fight is a, an interesting word. We have to push back on the government. We have to let the government know this is not acceptable. Yes, so if you want to call that a fight... I guess you can call it a fight, uh, but it's our responsibility to look after the interests of uh, of our municipalities. It's my responsibility uh, and that of council uh, to look after the city of Hamilton. And so we need to make sure that not only uh, the, the the government uh, uh, at Queen's Park, but also our local members of provincial parliament are um, are aware that th- that this legislation uh, needs to slow down and there needs to be some engagement. We need to do this together. They can't uh, just you know, push this down on us uh, and not expect us to, uh, you know, to, um, to to say something about it and not expect us to, uh, you know, do our job, which is to protect the interests of the people of Hamilton or the people of the various municipalities uh, in the province. Mayor Hovrath, thanks for waking up with us on Good Morning Hamilton. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Rick. You that, too. That is a Hamilton Mayor Andrea Horvath. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Buffalo and other parts of western New York, as well as Niagara, digging out from a monstrous winter storm over the weekend. And right smack dab in the middle of all the action was Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony, good morning. How are you? <laughs> good morning to you. I uh, I am... Tired of snow. I, I know a lot of people are saying the same thing, but uh, those in Buffalo, especially just to the south of there, have been dealing with it since late last week, and, and it was just a, an incredible storm to, to be part of. You were in the middle of it, as I mentioned, in Buffalo. How bad did it get? Well, it's just that that first night when we arrived, uh, there was grass on the ground, there was not a flake, and you're just questioning your, your forecasting motives, uh, and you're wondering, if, is it really going to be that bad? And then we, we checked into our hotel, uh, this is right near Orchard Park, which is some of the worst areas, and it started to snow. It came down almost like a wall of snow, and then there was lightning, there was thunder, and that continued for the entire night. So by the time we woke up uh, on Friday morning, there was already a, a couple of feet, about 60 centimeters down, and it just was relentless right up until uh, late Friday night when, when the snow finally moved away and, and that snow band moved into uh, southern Ontario, into Niagara region. You sent out an insane tweet, dude, where's my car? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I actually wasn't joking. I needed to use my key to find out which car was beeping because I forgot who <laughs> I... Arrived pretty late in the evening, didn't realize where I parked and and couldn't see which car was which because it was just a mound of of snow by by morning. How was it getting around the city? Were you able to? 
Well, it, it was it was difficult. We often had to turn around. Uh, thankfully, uh, our camera crew and, and all of our global fitted cars uh, had put on the winter tires the week before because I know a lot of even the local residents that are storm hardy and, and know this thing's coming, uh, they hadn't had a time to put in the winter tires. So uh, that was one problem. The major interstate, Interstate 90, was completely shut down and they had removed all of the transport trucks, the big 18 wheelers off the highway. So all the side streets were just littered with these giant transport trucks. And, and that's the problem when plows then can't get around them and other people get stuck. So uh, it, it was difficult navigating. Some roads were open. Others had not been touched by a plow. And, and it's one of those things when you have snowfall rates of about 10 centimeters every single hour. If a plow misses your street for three, four hours, it's basically it's now not able to get through there. So you have to wait for for the big the big trucks to get in there after the storm. Talking about snowmageddon in Buffalo this past weekend on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. You can check out his daily forecast at Global News at 530 and 6. Was this the biggest snowfall you've ever been in? It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. And and the totals where, where I was broadcasting from, uh, about six feet, five inches. That's what fell in just over 24 hours, which is just hard to fathom. That's 195 centimeters of snow in just over a day. I'm still flabbergasted by that. Uh, and, and it just was, was relentless. And when we're out there uh, with the camera guy, we're wading through this, this hip deep snow. And as we're broadcasting we basically become part of of of, of, of frosty the snowman because of the amount of white caps we have on everything from the equipment to our heads to to just everything we touch is just a wet sticky snow and was this primarily generated because this this trough or this system was coming across the great lakes and really picking up a lot of that moisture yeah, so there, there's a lot that goes into the lake effect snow. It's actually about eight years to the exact date of the, the last major storm they had in South Buffalo where, where similar snow totals were observed. So it's something about November, and especially this year, we, we had a very mild fall, and everybody was enjoying the, the nice conditions, even up through early November, highs some days in the low 20s. And what that did is, is it created ideal conditions, Lake Erie, was running warmer than it has been at any point in the last almost 30 years. So that warm Lake Erie water combined now with the cold air that we've had for a few days and those winds which were lined directly to the southwest. So basically you had the wind flowing over the entire length of Lake Erie and depositing that snow and it didn't move much for for 24 hours so that's the reason for for those high totals. So are you and the global crew stuck in Buffalo? Are you able to get out of the city? We were stuck for a little while. We we had to to use some crafty navigating because, of course, you had to you couldn't go on the highways. They were still closed. We it took me about an hour. I did a time lapse of of, <laughs> of getting my car finally out of the parking lot. Uh, there were other crews. The weather network. I know uh, the plows never really got their parking lot done. So they and then a couple other teams had to personally shovel their way to get to the major road. So there are all sorts of stories like that. I know Buffalo Bills players had to be, uh, in some cases, rescued by snowmobile to get to their flight so that they could play in Detroit. So there are all sorts of stories. We, we did finally get out. We were broadcasting uh, Saturday night from Niagara Falls where the snow squall had, had found us, or we found it. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a harrowing ordeal to, to get out of town.
I believe it. Well, safe travels home and appreciate the time today. Thanks, Anthony. And Rick, it all it all starts to melt this week, so that's <laughs> that's the good news. It, it's warming up. Wow. Thanks. Have a great one. All right. See you. That is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Yeah, the, the, the great snowfall turns into the great melt. Jeez, the next story is going to be flooding in Buffalo. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Academic, if he makes it, Winnipeg will take the lead. Rod Smith, the call on TSN. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. What a Grey Cup final in Regina. The 109th CFL Championship game is in the books. And the Toronto Argonauts upsetting the Winnipeg Blue Bombers 24-23 to win their 18th Canadian Football League title. Here to recap the events from last night, Mark Steven, the play-by-play announcer for the Calgary Stampeders on CHQR. It was in Regina for the big game. Mark, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning. Still buzzing from what we saw last night. It was just crazy, and uh, Toronto ends up coming on top of one of the wildest Great Cup games ever. Yeah, that was that was a pretty entertaining game, especially the second half. Especially the fourth quarter. I mean, uh, so much was jammed in there. You just uh, have to step back and just process all what happened. I mean, you know, a guy goes from a goat to a hero. Uh, how many blocked uh, kick field goals do you ever see? I mean, maybe one a year, one every two years. Never mind two on consecutive kicks. Uh, an uncharacteristic interception, a poor throw by Zach Caleros. Just everything. It went back and forth, a change in quarterbacks. It's just it's really hard to process all that happened in just a very short period of time there. Now you can't take away the fact that Toronto won the championship, but did the better team win? Well, I thought it was going to be a close game anyway. I mean, the team with the better record, no. But on this particular day, the answer is yes, I would say so. I mean, Toronto hung around and did just what they had to do, and uh, they came out with the victory. So it's a one-game showdown. Anything can happen. And, uh, you know, a lot of uncharacteristic mistakes by uh, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, but were some of those forced on them by, uh, you know, Toronto's relentless pressure on the front four. I thought their secondary also, by and large, was excellent. It was important, though, that they finally actually intercepted a pass instead of knocking them down. I guess knockdowns are better than, you know, Winnipeg catching it. But, uh, no, I think Toronto played very, very well, and... uh, uh, let's give them a credit. We're recapping last night's Grey Cup in Regina, in which the Argos hoisted the trophy after beating the two-time defending champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We're in discussion with Mark Steven, play-by-play announcer for the Calgary Stampeders on sister station CHQR in Calgary. A lot of empty seats at Mosaic Stadium last night. Obviously not a good look for the league's championship showdown. Any thoughts as to why it was not a full house? Well, obviously the locals not being in it, uh, that was sort of the uh, linchpin of getting the Grey Cup was having the locals in it. Uh, you know, ticket prices were expensive. I'll tell you one other thing that I think prohibited a lot of people or caused them to think twice about coming in, the airfares were just in orbit. I mean, you know, Regina is the league's smallest market, and then there's elevated demand to get here. So airline tickets were really expensive. So those were some of the issues. And uh, there's also some talk, though, that a lot of people stayed up in the concourse area. You can stand 
stand, you know, uh, around similar to what you can do in Hamilton with at Tim Hortons and watch the game from sort of some areas and not necessarily be in your seat. So there's a feeling that a lot of those seats were sold, but because the weather was wasn't cold, but uh, if you could warm up, why not? And uh, a lot of people took advantage. Uh, this game, as you mentioned, had pretty much everything, including those two block field goal attempts late in the fourth quarter. It also had a backup quarterback in Chad Kelly, who came in in relief of McLeod Bethel Thompson, who hurt his thumb in the fourth quarter. He has a key run to set up the game-winning, ultimately game-winning touchdown. Is Chad Kelly the guy, do you think, in Toronto going forward? Well, I know McLeod Bethel Thompson is one of the great polarizing figures in the CFL, but I kind of like him, to tell you the truth. I think he's pretty good. Uh, he wasn't absolutely the top of his game yesterday, but uh, I think he's pretty good. But Chad Kelly certainly opened up some eyes around the league. I think he'll get an opportunity. Uh, you know, maybe it's in Toronto. I don't know. But uh, McLeod Bethel Thompson uh, is good enough for me in Toronto. But uh, it was remarkable. And you, you mentioned that run. That's the time I started to really think, wait a minute, Toronto's going to win this thing because that was a spectacular run and it set up a go-ahead touchdown and, you know, put them right within goal line distance and they ended up punching it in there. When it begs Daenerys, Grant also setting a Grey Cup record with a 102-yard punt return for a touchdown in the fourth quarter. This game, as we said, has everything. I, I have to end with this. We know that the Ticats have acquired the negotiation rights to longtime Stampeders quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell. If Hamilton does sign him, what are the Ticats getting? Well, they're getting, first of all, uh, one of the great winners in CFL history. Uh, he's an elite player and has been. There are concerns about his uh, shoulder that maybe he isn't quite the same quarterback that he is. But uh, you know what? Maybe his smarts, and he is a very intelligent player, can overcome some of that. You know, the Stampeders were at a bit of a crossroads. They had young Jake Mayer. His contract was scheduled to expire in the spring. So, you know what? Uh, I hope it works out for Bo. He's a tremendous person. He's much beloved in Calgary, I can tell you that. And uh, we'll see if he can bounce all the way back because the Tiger Cats are counting on it. And good for the Cats to make an aggressive, bold move to kick off the offseason. Mark, appreciate the time. Safe travels home. Okay, thank you very much for the call, Rick. Appreciate it. That is Mark Stephen, longtime play-by-play announcer with the Calgary Stampeders on sister station CHQR in Calgary. He was in Regina last night for the Grey Cup and obviously had a rock and roll of a time. What a game that was in Regina. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're talking some racing, Formula One which just wrapped up its season over the weekend, planning to establish a racing series for women. Yeah, this is a racing circuit that will be for drivers age 16 to 22, and the plan is to run it alongside the all-female W Series, which fell on hard times this year. I had to cancel its last three races due to financial difficulties. How... How popular, how much needed is this new racing series for women on the F1 circuit? Well, let's ask one of the experts here, Eric Thomas, host of Raceline Radio, which you can hear Sundays at 8 p.m. on 900 CHML. E.T., good morning. How are you? RZ, I'm good. I, it's funny because in the roll-up, and I had the radio on in the background, and I, I was kind of like half listening, doing a, getting coffee and whatever I needed to do, and I thought, he's not bringing me on for the dating segment, is he? <laughs> <laughs> I'm no. kidding, I'm kidding. We, we spared you that one. What, what are your, what's your thoughts on this one? Is there a market for an all-women's F1 series? Um, yeah, there is. If you're going to develop your female drivers, because they announced it, it it's, it's, they're calling it an academy uh, to bridge the gap for women in the junior ladder. It's, it's aimed to increase, 
I'm going to word it the way they had it. Female representation on the grids of F1's feeder series in the junior Formula I helped them progress towards the top of the racing pyramid in Formula One. Um, uh, how are they going to do this? Formula Four level will start next season. Fifteen car grid, five teams each with three cars, seven rounds, three races per, and they're going to do one of them on an F1 weekend. This is an excellent way to do something that is that is badly needed, and that is to get the developing female drivers who have their eyes on doing Formula One, and I think that's needed because in the, in over seventy seven oh years, only two females have ever made an F1 starting grid. So what they do need is track time to develop their talent in top flight equipment to get used to working with with teams uh, at the top level to get used to that climate, and I think that's a very good thing. However, what you have to keep in mind with these things, and this is not the first time you mentioned the W Series and there have been other attempts at having female driver series, is the fact that if you talk to the female drivers, they'll tell you the one caveat is that this is only the first step, Rick, because... While you can give the female drivers added track time and the experience they need until they are able to get out and race with the guys toe-to-toe, their development isn't going to develop to full potential. That's the one thing. To, get, to have this series put together is excellent, but the sooner they can get out there and slug it out toe-to-toe with the guys, their development isn't going to be realized, to it, as I said again, to its full potential. So this is a terrific first step. But what I think they need to do is make sure that once it hits a certain level, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You, you, you need to be able to get up to the point where, yeah, throw to the wolves, I guess, is the, is, the, is the vernacular. Sometimes people use that phraseology. You never learn it until you get in there and do it. And that's what you have to do. That, this is a good first step, but it is important, critical in my mind, in my experience, that you need to have the secondary part of it where you start to interplay and race against the guys. It's terrific to race against other females, but you need to get that realized by racing against the men as soon as you can. It's almost like if you talk to a musician, you can learn, you know, play along with records and learn at home and do all that kind of stuff, and, and that's a great way to learn, but you never really start to learn, as they call it, your chops and develop as a musician until you work into the framework of a band and get out and play with other musicians. It's the same kind of, of theory and the same kind of idea. So it's a good first step for, the, for this new series, the academies are calling it, but the sooner they can get them out onto the racetrack with the guys, um, it needs to have that second part for this to really work, Rick, and to have legs and last a, a certain length of time. That is basically what former race car driver Danica Patrick said as well. And, exactly. and she, she went yep. one step further to say, you know, this need we need a bit of a culture shift for some of these team owners to say, all right, let's bring a female in in one of our junior roles, get her into the yep. car, see what she yep. can do, and then compete against the guys. And if anything, if there's ever a time to launch this, considering the popularity of F1 right now, right. Right. Now's the time to do it. Exactly. And, she, and she's right in, in, in many respects, and she's basically saying what I'm saying, too. This will get them used to how a team operates and to get them into, into F4 equipment and to really learn what it's like to, to get into a junior formula on that road to maybe getting uh, an F1 seat. And as I said, there's only two females that have been on an F1 starting grid in over 70 years. The last female driver in F1 was Italy's Leila Lombardi, 12th in Austria in 76. She raced 17 GPs that year. Hmm. To this date, the longest F1 tenure for a female driver. The last female to attempt to qualify for a Formula One race. Italian Giovanna Amati in 92. She tried to qualify for three GPs, and unfortunately she didn't make it either any of those times. So, you know, it's, it's what Danica is saying is, is what I said. This is a good way to bring 
female drivers into your program, and, and uh, there, there are some female drivers right now. The development driver for Williams uh, is a 24-year-old Jamie Chadwick from England. She won the 2019, 2021, and 22 W Series championships. She's a development driver for Williams in F1, and that's the path that they all need to be on is to somehow get up there with a Formula One team or at least part of their organization to learn how you do things. But until they get out on the, again, I'm going to repeat myself, but it's critical if this thing is going to last and have any sort of longevity is they got to get out and race against the guys as soon as they can. Otherwise, their development isn't going to be realized. We have uh, one more minute with Eric Thomas, host of Raceline Radio. You can hear it Sundays at 8 p.m. here on 900 CHML. The 2022 F1 season is over. Max Verstappen, once again, the F1 champ. Yep. Uh, Red Bull uh, at the top of the constructor standings. Bit of a rebound for Ferrari. Mercedes comes back a little bit. Looking ahead to 2023, I know there's going to be some more changes. What's the one thing you're most looking forward to? Well, one thing I'm looking forward to is the Mercedes guys coming out of the gate like they should have this year with a car that their drivers can use. I mean, Lewis Hamilton was looking for revenge after having that championship snatched away from him uh, the year before, but he came out with a car that was porpoising or bouncing all over the place and, and couldn't race with it the way we're used to seeing Lewis Hamilton race and be dominant. Now, to his credit, to his talent, he got podiums out of it, and the car got a little bit better. George Russell eventually won with that thing in Brazil. But Mercedes came out of the gate with a car that was terrible at the beginning of the year, and they have got to fix that completely uh, for 2023. Otherwise, we're going to see the same thing. And, and that's the one big development that I'm going to be charting in the offseason is whether or not Toto Wolff and that crew are going to come out with a car that Lewis can use because Lewis is not going to stop racing until he gets that eighth championship to break the tie with Michael Schumacher for the greatest of all time in terms of how many championships in a career you've got. That's probably, to me, the number one story in F1. It's going to be fun to watch. E.T., always appreciate your time. Thanks for waking up with us here on GMH. Always a lot of fun, Rick. Let's do it again. Eric Thomas, host of Race Line Radio. You can hear it Sunday evenings at 8 right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are you in the dating scene right now? Are you looking for love in 2023? Maybe it's going to be a New Year's resolution. You know, get back in the dating world or find someone that is going to be Mr. Right or Mrs. Right or whatever the case is. Well, you want to know about the latest trends in dating. And there's a lot of different things nowadays, at least I think, compared to when I was in the dating scene. Stuff like green dating, cash candid dating, winter coding. What, what is this? Well, the dating app Bumble has released its annual predictions for what we can expect in the new year. And here to talk about it is Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert. Dr. O'Reilly, good morning. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I like that OJ's intro. I like that music. puts me in a good mood. <laughs> this uh, There's some interesting findings with this uh, Bumble uh, survey, including the fact that we are obviously an emotional species and emotional needs are a big priority. Is that because of the pandemic? Well, I do think more of us are more in touch with how we're feeling. And we, I think many of us, what we learned during the pandemic was to sit with those emotions rather than necessarily just running from them and distracting ourselves. So I think now we have more language for expressing how we feel and because we were sitting at home for a long time, we know how those emotions show up in our bodies. So we can say, oh, you know what? I can tell I'm feeling anxious because I'm kind of clenching my head and my tail. 
or I can tell that I'm feeling uncomfortable because I find myself squirming or bouncing around a little. So I think we have more emotional literacy than ever. And in dating, we're expecting the same from, from potential partners. A lot of people saying that setting boundaries is also important. 63% of daters, according to the survey, say they're clear about their emotional needs and their boundaries. How big of a factor is this in the dating world? Uh, this is a big thing. So boundaries, you know, boundaries have always been around, but I think we're more verbal about just using the language of boundaries these days. And I think there are some generational differences here with uh, millennials as well as Gen Zers or Gen Zers being more uh, more specific about saying, hey, this is one of my hard boundaries. This is one of my soft boundaries that I might be a little bit flexible on. That's not to suggest that older folks haven't always set boundaries, but they just haven't used the language around it. And I actually think it's really good that we're coming out out front with that language because it means we're more aware of our own needs and then we can be clearer about those needs with other people. We're talking about 2023 dating trends with Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert. You can find out more online at sexwithdrjess.com. And we're referring to a survey that was done by dating app Bumble. 54% of respondents say their work-life balance is important. And only 10% say they will no longer date someone who has a very demanding job. We are, and maybe the pandemic has kind of opened our eyes to this, is that there's more than just work. Oh, yes, absolutely. Listen, we all know people who quit their jobs and started some sort of consulting company or they're working for themselves or they're traveling and working remotely. Uh, I think what we were reminded of for a couple of years and we continue to be reminded of today is that life is short. We've got one life to live and we have to ask ourselves where we want to invest our time, our energy, our emotional energy. I always ask the question when you're 88 or when you're 99, however long you know you, you hope to live, when I'm 99, will this matter to me? Is this something I want to invest in now? Of course, there's some privilege in that. Most of us have to work. So, you know, not everybody has the same choices to jet off to Mexico City and work remotely. But those who do are doing as much as they can. 52, I found this interesting, 52% of daters are expanding the horizons beyond what they typically go for. Is that just under the category of they want to explore something new? Oh, I hope this has to do with opening minds and realizing that you can't find the perfect partner. You can't, it's not like Build-A-Bear, we can go custom design exactly <laughs> what you're looking for. I think we're learning to be just more flexible in every area of our lives. And I always tell people that rather than analyzing this person you're dating, tune into what you're feeling in your body. People will say, well, oh, I didn't like the way he ate or what she ordered or the way they spoke or their mannerisms. Come on, those are not necessarily the things that create a foundation for a long-lasting relationship. Anyone can experience attraction. Anyone can put on a performance for a three-hour meal. But tune into what you're feeling in your body and how you feel about yourself in the presence of somebody, and that's a much better measure of a potential relationship or an existing one. This is a neat one, too. 33% of people on Bumble now open uh, more open to having relationships with people not in their current city. So I guess they're willing to travel for love. Well, people are willing to travel for anything. If we can take a look at the lineups around the world in the airports, everyone is moving around. And at the onset of the pandemic, some of the bigger apps created the opportunities and premium programs where that allowed you to date outside of your local area. And that is something that is absolutely here to stay because we know that digital relationships are meaningful. We know that digital connections are lasting and we know that digital empathy is a real uh, source of support for people across the world. We don't necessarily have to be 
face-to-face, eye-to-eye at all moments in time. And so absolutely, you might find somebody who's a great connection over in, in Romania or in Spain or who knows. Well, another minute with Dr. Jess O'Reilly. Uh, Dr. Uh, Instagram is uh, Sex with Dr. Jess, and you can also find out uh, her website at sexwithdrjess.com. This is an interesting one, too. 36% of people are using dating apps for the first time. Ooh, this is such great news. So the way I see dating apps, I see them as an expansion of opportunities. So now it's not just your inner circle who can introduce you to somebody who might be a great connection, but now we've just got all these expanded options. And I love that more people are online and more diverse people are online. We're seeing people in their 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond using dating apps as a way to connect. And even if every date doesn't lead to a, you know, your soulmate or your your lifelong love connection, people are also becoming friends, having met online and said, you know what, maybe this isn't a fit for a romantic or intimate relationship, but I'm glad we're connected and friendships can blossom over time. Dr. Jess, always uh, great catching up. Thanks for the time and the insight this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great one. You too. That's Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert online, sexwithdrjess.com. And check out her Instagram at sexwithdrjess.com. Dr. Jess. One of the things I refer to was winter coding. Well, apparently this is where former partners or exes get together in a bid to rekindle an extinguished flame. I guess be careful is uh, the, the prognosis there. And green dating is um, for those environmentally conscious singles and people who want to get together. I guess you don't, I don't know, drive to your date, maybe just walk or take public transit. That might be green dating. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.